shining a light on autism and life on the spectrum. Welcome to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly, a podcast breaking down barriers, stigma and misconceptions around autism. And now, here's your neurologically different host, Orion Kelly. And thanks for listening to My Friend Autism. I'm Orion Kelly and, yep, I have autism. But what's critical to understand is I'm just one person on the autism spectrum. So if you've met one person on the spectrum, well, you've met one person on the spectrum. No two autistic people are the same. We have individual challenges and gifts. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest, engaging conversations on autism. This podcast seeks to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism while providing real insights into life on the spectrum. My aim is to have open conversations that inform and engage and ultimately make the world a better place for those living with autism. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Join the conversation now at the Orion Kelly Facebook page. My Friend On this debut episode, my guests are my wife, Renee, and from Autism Spectrum Australia, Dr. Tom Tutton, a clinical psychologist and the National Manager of Aspect Practice. Given it is the debut episode of My Friend Autism, I wanted to share with you my personal story of finding my place on the spectrum. I can think of no one better than my wife to help me tell that story. Renee, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on this debut episode of My Friend Autism. Aside from obviously being my wife and the mother of our two beautiful boys, just briefly, I just want to let people in on you professionally as well. So you work in the medical field. That's right. So I'm a geriatrician, which means I look after people that are over the age of 65 years. Or have like conditions. Exactly, yeah. So younger people with issues like dementia or memory problems. In short, you're a physician, which is basically a specialist doctor. Uh, I just think that's important as it's grounding in this conversation because I'd love to know, you've got a medical background, you've obviously gone to uni and you've studied it and now you work in it and you've worked in it for some time. So that gives you a slightly different perspective, but it also helps us understand, you know, hey, if regular everyday people don't know much about it, I wonder if other people do too. So prior to us embarking on my diagnosis of autism, what did you actually know about autism? Very little. So I think it's something that isn't really taught that much during your university degree. It's definitely touched on, but it's not in a lot of depth. Um, And you more learn about it when you do your psychiatry terms in medical school. And then during physician's training, it, it wasn't part of the training at all. It's often looked after by a different group of medical professionals. So it comes under either paediatricians because children are often when people are diagnosed with autism or it's under the um, training of psychiatry. Now, I know it's clearly not your specialty being in geriatrics, but it seems like autism is still a mystery to those that actually study it and specialise in it, let alone the general community. Is that kind of your impression? I think from our experience, my impression's changed a little bit. So initially I thought all people that have done psychiatry or all paediatricians would have some idea about what autism is, what the red flags are, um, or the more subtle signs that you might not know about in the general community. But now that we've had our own experience, I know that that's completely incorrect. And actually, it's really the people within those fields that have done extra training and that's their subspecialty that are the ones that you need to be going to for a diagnosis, not the general paediatrician or the general psychiatrist because they actually don't have the set of skills that's required to diagnose autism. And when they and, and saying they do, whether it's through a receptionist on a website, I don't think is enough. I think it's really important to kind of ask a bit more about well, what do you mean you do? You know, what do you, you know, what have you learned? What do you know? Because I think and hopefully this this conversation about our, our own personal experience, which which we'll get to, I hope that that kind of helps people and push them along the right way. But it's a great point you raise because we just assumed if you want to know if you've got autism or you know you don't have autism you know you go to specialist a and specialist a tells you either way the fear is that 
specialist aid doesn't actually have up-to-date knowledge and, and the up-to-date practices, which have changed, you know, streamlined nationally. Definitely. Uh, and therefore misdiagnose you, which from my point of view would be my my worst nightmare for people listening right now. For if, you know, being misdiagnosed could, in my opinion, I mean, given that I was initially and then was properly diagnosed, I, when I think if I never never got that correct diagnosis, my life, how my life would have gone after that and i fear for other people too so it's a really it's a really great point that the community doesn't know much about autism let alone you know specialists and people that study it who say it's still so complex is just a really important thing to remember absolutely and i think the other the other key thing is not only going to the right specialist but if you do go to someone that says they specialize in it and they don't and then they you're falsely reassured that you don't have autism and then you keep on going through life wondering why you feel different or wondering why you have so many challenges i think that's so damaging the misdiagnosis is damaging as well as not being diagnosed wholeheartedly well it would be I think probably detrimental, seriously detrimental to your ability to live a life that gives you the same opportunities and the same experiences as as other people. Mm. I hope sharing my story of finding my place on the autism spectrum and receiving a diagnosis is a good start towards having better conversations around autism. So let's give that a go then. It's fair to say that, uh, you know, I can be pretty reliant on you to, to take the lead in social situations and also to, to kind of better convey what I'm trying to say to people sometimes due to how, you know, autism affects me personally. I'm obviously grateful for having such a caring and understanding person in my life. So let's go back to the start and use the kind of good old-fashioned hindsight. Can you share your impressions of, of meeting me and getting to know me when, you know, when we kind of first met? And did you notice any differences over time? I think I noticed some slight quirks over time. And that's all I thought they were. They were just part of who you were and I actually liked the quirks about you. The fact Can you that, kind of explain what they were? Or? Yeah, so I guess being perfectionist and also making um, sure that you were clearly understood by clarifying things a lot of the time or I guess in retrospect looking at minutiae of things a lot of the time but also your real passion for radio and your passion for performing which are special interests of yours. And looking back, maybe they were more than just things you're interested in. They were things that you wholeheartedly were interested in. You don't have any interest outside of those um, those things. So I think they're probably the biggest things when I look back and I, I look at our relationship. But I I still don't see them as negatives. Any of them socially? Well, with me, you you never have been awkward or socially inappropriate I always thought that was your humor more than anything more than being socially inappropriate so for me I didn't see that at home but certainly when we were in social situations with people that I might have known and you didn't it was clear that you had some social um, integration problems and that often people would think you're either being rude because you weren't talking with them and looking them in the eyes or um, that you thought you were better than everyone because you weren't um, joining in the conversation and you might have come across like aloof or um, not engaging and that wasn't Obviously, now looking back, that wasn't because you didn't want to. That's because you actually couldn't join in those conversations. And I think that's really interesting, you know, to kind of go back and experience it and hear myself because, you know, when this is just who you are, and this has always been me my whole life, no one's going to tell you any different. You know, people who say, oh, he's so quiet or he's so shy or, you know, or like you say, he's, he's quiet, he's shy or he's just rude or he's just arrogant or whatever. And or the classic, he takes a while to warm up. And that's, that's a big thing. You know, that has always been me. And what's, I, what I find now really interesting is looking back, you know, when we first met, you have a lot of friends I don't. So obviously I met a lot of your friends and a lot mm. of your family, but there's really no one for me to introduce you to apart from my family. I mean, and this is probably an autistic thing, my ability to build and maintain relationships, friendships, I should say. It just isn't there. It's yeah. not my thing. I'm not very good at it. I don't think – I think I'd be lying if I said I cared. You don't. <laughs> I'm like, I know that sounds strange, but you know what? Just get used to it. I don't <laughs> – tough luck. That's me. That's, all, that's, that's autism. But it's really interesting because when you hear it, you know, and hopefully people that hear these things – it gives them an idea that they're not alone mm. and that this is this is a normal thing for people and life is still good. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think it's also important to, to point out that I was diagnosed as an adult uh, and it was done by a team of 
you know, specialist healthcare professionals. It wasn't a self-diagnosis. I made up my GP, clinical psychologist, and a psychiatrist who specialised in the field. And for one reason or another, I slipped through the cracks when I was growing up. But I think it's really important to note that those with autism, well, they're born with it. You, you are born autistic or you are not. It's not something you acquire over time. So I was diagnosed as an adult, but I was born with autism. That's your understanding as well? Absolutely, that's, that's correct. You don't acquire autism past a certain point. So, for example, there's a genetic makeup, and we, we talk about this with Tom Tutton, but there's, there's a genetic makeup. And then there's also, um, as the psychiatrist who diagnosed me, he put a few other things into the basket that, that added to it, which was while I was... Um, Birth trauma is one of the other big known reasons to end up with autism. So, so during the pregnancy and birthing period, certain traumas infections, different things, exactly. certain things can add to that. Uh, and then it still meant that, you know, once I was born, I didn't acquire it later. It was, I, I, was, I was born with autism as a result of things like genetics and trauma and things. Mm. Sometimes I think, I wonder if everyone knows that. I don't think so. Well, there wouldn't be so many people going on about how vaccines cause autism or how um, you could think of insert anything here causes autism. So I think people don't understand it or they wouldn't have those arguments because you can't acquire it from something. You can acquire an acquired brain injury from, say, a road vehicle accident and having a head trauma or many other things that involve injuries to the head. But that's not going to cause autism at that stage of your life. That's going to cause a brain injury. So there's a distinct difference between the two and distinct difference in how they present as well. So then they're completely separate entities. And that's what's really interesting and I think it's important we, we know and acknowledge you know, that with all the, the, all the kind of unhelpful conversations about this causes, that causes, this causes, that causes, it just doesn't help. And we can say with, you know, with absolute honesty well things do cause autism like genetics definitely and trauma during pregnancy and birth that doesn't mean that we can continue to try and you know give energy or give light to these kind of ridiculous assumptions that you know things once a child is born will will you know result in them acquiring autism we have to be real about this okay and we it's not going to help the not only the people on the spectrum in their community but the wider community kind of understand you know accept and acknowledge autistic people for who they are, which is just other people who are entitled to the same, you know, kind of rights and liberties and uh, opportunities as everyone else until we all kind of can come under the same page. Okay, so let's put that aside. You're, you're either born with it or you're not. Let's put that aside move on and learn uh, and let's go on forward and learn other things. Does that make sense? That's kind mm. of what I really hope. So what's really kind of important from my point of view is why did I even look into an autism diagnosis like why did I decide to get assessed so you know my journey started the same way I guess most people who look at getting an assessment did which was I brought it up with a GP and the GP you know gave me a referral to a a psychiatrist that's the standard way um, for adults I should say Mm. I think for children there's different specialists and in the field and that's the general way and that's how I got there but it wasn't the start because what I obviously have, um, you know, an anxiety condition and I decided enough was enough I should go and see, you know, a psychologist about my anxiety. My, my memory might be warped, but I feel like within minutes, you know, within like the first session, you know, the psychologist kind of in a friendly, open, honest, professional manner kind of flagged the idea of what she referred to as Asperger's uh, or, or autism with me and and. My first reaction was, hang, hang on a second, champ. I've come here for, <laughs> for you to help me with anxiety. Let's just stop the, stop the <laughs> game for a second here. Time out. What, what are you talking about? That didn't seem like a big surprise to you when I, when I shared that story with you, did it? No, and I think that's because um, since our son was born, Conan was born, that I'd noticed some more changes in yourself over the, the, that five-year period where your anxiety was much worse. I'd find that if um, situations or plans were to change that you'd become quite distressed by that uh, and that some of your social responses to something um, dramatic happening in our lives weren't always as I would anticipate them to be or what would be socially acceptable. Acceptable, 
one of the biggest ones that comes to my mind is when I had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy and I never saw you cry like, and I was very close to dying. And I thought, wow, uh, this is doesn't seem quite right to me. Like you're not showing emotion or at that time at all. And that so there was a few little things along the way that made me think more and more that there could be the collection of symptoms that you had could be relating to being on the, on the spectrum. Yeah, and for those listening who haven't heard our conversation about, you know, our uh, miscarriages, uh, which is part of um, a podcast I do called Intensely Inquisitive that you can go and find that if, if you'd like to check that out. Is I think it's really important to note. So you, you had an ectopic miscarriage or pregnancy and in effect, you know, almost killed you and you were kind of saved in surgery. And I'm sure you know, and uh, for me, clearly it affected me deeply, horribly and deeply. And it was, it, it, it was, but you're right. It's a great point to say. So, you know, someone who is, you know, neurologically different and doesn't, understand things or process things the way you know regular kind of I don't know neurologically typical people do whatever the phrase is um i it was really interesting because it's not like I didn't want to cry it's not like I wasn't super sad I mean I was also overwhelmed looking after our young son at the time I can't explain that I can't explain why that was my reaction but it's a window into um the way my brain works mm. I feel like I have to kind of explain that to you but I don't no, I knew yeah. that you were deeply affected by it. There's no doubt about that. But it's a great it's just point you, in the difference. Yeah, you just express it in different ways. And she's not exaggerating. I mean, it was legitimately near death. So it was, it was one of those situations where it was very overwhelming for everyone. Uh, and, and I guess over time too for you, you've probably through yourself and interactions and other people that you know, maybe people yes. have, talk, have people yes. talked to you about it? Yes, yeah, so definitely and totally separate about not talking about the ectopic anymore, but I, I that conversation we just had there really sparked a memory for me that there's a lot of people that I work with that have kids that are on the autism spectrum and the more that they would talk to me about things that they're experiencing with their children or their loved one the more I thought hang on a second me too this is happening to me as well I I can relate to this maybe just maybe this is why I'm experiencing all these things. And for me one of the reasons why I thought yep let's look into this at least is because, and we've always shared this with you, it's kind of been a long-running saga for me my whole life. I've never felt uh, like I fit in. Mm. I've never felt like I had a place. And I never felt like I um, belonged. They're strange things to say. It's not like I don't want to fit in or mm. I don't want to belong, but I never have. So, you know, I, I, feel, I feel different to my my family, my extended family, not in a, in a way where it's a, in a bad way or I don't, I don't want to feel like them. I just, I can't explain it. Mm. Um, and workplaces for me, it's also for workplaces, it's kind of strange, but my mentality, I mean, obviously I love work and I love doing what I do, but I can't feel the same as regular people in that workplace. It, it, it has a different feeling to me. It's kind of a disconnection. I love to do what I'm good at and I love working and I work hard. But there's a disconnection between that and the standard workplace things. Like, why would I want to go into a room and, you know, have a muffin and a drink when I've brought my own bloody water and lunch to, to work? I don't want to be forced to sit in a boardroom and, you know, endless chatter and have a muffin and a drink. Like, what's the point of that? I don't see the point of that. You, you, you know, <laughs> I can do a job. I can do it well. Let me do it. And but you've always said that you don't like small talk and I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, I hate You just talk. hate talking, sitting around talking about stuff that means nothing, and the like thing, the weather or the traffic or whatever. Exactly. No, I hate yeah. that. And the other thing, and obviously usually my answers aren't very nice to them, but not in a rude way. No, and but also, it comes across rude, but yes. it's not coming from a rude place. And also from my point of view, I've always been a brutally, you know, honest and open talker. Some might say straight shooter, but for, for me, it's not, I'm not being brutal. I'm not being a straight shooter. I'm not being open. I'm honest. I'm just being me. This is, this is what I logically think that we should say in a situation. And it wasn't until we talked about this, you know, you kind of explained that that's not when I go, but, but, you know, Renee, this is what everyone should say in this situation. This is the truth, you know, but it's not, it's not socially proper. And, you know, in many ways, it's 2019 now, but over the last 20 years, in many ways, you know, the kind of the progression of a standardised HR department for standardised normal people in normal neurological situations has really impacted the ability for people who have challenges, like myself, to not come across as, you know, uh, like... Uh, a prick. Not come, across, <laughs> not come across in the HR way of looking at people yeah. in the workplace as a, he's a bad, we can't, he's a bad employee. We don't want him. He, yeah, yeah. You know. uh, and that's really, I find that really sad. 
in the end, the way I, you know, the way I can come across with a neurological disability to a HR department because who only look at it through the round peg uh, is is an inappropriate employee, which is really not the case at all. No. And so it, it, that definitely pushed me towards, you know what, once for all, let's get this diagnosed. Because I, I was born with autism, but I didn't know I had it back then when when HR was saying, you know, what's what's your deal, mate, kind of thing. Uh, so I can't really blame them if I couldn't tell them what I had. But you, you can see why I decided let's get this done. Mm. And what ended up happening was I – I went to a, uh, a psychiatrist and my first experience, uh, it didn't go very well. I mean, it, we, we had a very, I guess, quickish, briefish conversation and I was told that because I worked in you know, entertainment, in radio, I'd, I'd, I'd performed on stages and at, at times I, I'd looked him in the eye and did a few different things that there's, it, there's, it's not possible. Oh, and because you had a wife. That's right. And also because... <laughs> you had a meaningful relationship with somebody. <laughs> yeah, and I think... Not caring about uni, he said. People with autism are studious. Well, once you've met one person, you've met one person. But nevertheless, I, w- I was diagnosed as no way, mates. Catch you later. That didn't sit well with the psychologist, the GP, my family, myself, and it was suggested that I kind of I, I, I said, okay, forget about yeah, it. Yeah, back it up a little bit there, Tiger. I think you were going to throw in throw it in and say, well, this guy's a specialist and he said, no, I don't have autism, so I'm obviously just a horrible person. Well, that's how it works. You, you, if you go and see a specialist, they, they assess you, they tell you either way. My understanding was he assessed me and said no, and what that meant was I'm just, to other people, I'm just a prick, I'm just a rude, arrogant prick, who doesn't fit in, doesn't have a place and doesn't understand why I don't belong. And that's just my life. And it wasn't a very good life. I reckon that was could have been so damaging to the point where you could have become suicidal if, if you kept on feeling the way you did and you didn't have an explanation for why you felt so different. You really think it could have got that bad? I absolutely do because your day-to-day life is very difficult and very challenging and before we knew you had autism, you, you can't process what you don't understand and you don't know. You just feel different and feel like you don't belong and that maybe you're better off not being here because of that, which is completely incorrect and everyone should seek help if they are feeling that way and shouldn't just hide their feelings and suppress them down. Obviously to you it was very important that I, I got a second opinion. It wasn't about us chasing a diagnosis. Definitely It was about not. getting a second opinion. But I think it's because... You know, healthcare professionals have already really said this is a no-brainer. Mm. It took a while for me because uh, I didn't want to push the idea that I was just trying to get a diagnosis. Because you know what? For God's sakes, why would I in the why would I want to chase a diagnosis? It makes absolutely no sense in this current day and age. It is nothing but stigmatized and misunderstood. And you know, as soon as you say you've, you have certain conditions, in many respects, the community can can cut you off. And that's what this podcast is all about, to turn that around. But that's a fact, isn't it? Absolutely. So many people wouldn't tell their workplace for fear that they would lose their job. Not that they could because of unfair dismissal, but that's exactly what people think. Because, you know, they think there's plenty of reasons why. I mean, you know, there's plenty of reasons you can dismiss someone. This is the reason why, but you give them a different reason. I mean, let's be honest. Mm. So it was really important to me just to, to feel like I had a fair hearing. I didn't have a fair hearing. And I finally had the opportunity to see uh, a fantastic psychiatrist who's a, you know associate professor. He's an absolute master in the area. Uh, my Your impression of him was fantastic as well. Absolutely. Wonderful guy. And after multiple, not one, after multiple sessions, and we did a we did like a DSM-5 kind of thing or something. I don't know. I'm sort All standardised questionnaires sort of standardized to do the diagnosis. After multiple yeah. sessions and assessments, I was diagnosed. My understanding is – I mean. Doctors use weird language, but you know, I was I was diagnosed with autism. I, you know, I definitely definitely meet the criteria, and he he described it as uh, high functioning autism or Asperger's. Not referred to that anymore, obviously, but in effect, he diagnosed me with with autism. That's your understanding? Absolutely, yeah. it is, and you still won't believe that, even though it's written down on a letter from him. There's two pages, <laughs> two pages of numbered things that. That I met that criteria that yeah yeah <laughs> two pages of criteria and when you read it out loud it's not good it doesn't it makes me feel when I read those criteria out loud I think it makes me feel really bad for you and for the people around me because it's like really am I am I like this am I is this me and I know it isn't me I'm me and they're just 
challenges through autism, but I can only be honest. And it's just who you are. That doesn't change who you are. Doesn't doesn't make me not want to be married to you. Doesn't want me make me change anything about you. It's just meeting a diagnosis. That's yeah. all it is. And like you say, it was for me it was kind of strange, you know, like you talk about how many times does he need to tell you you definitely, you know, you definitely have autism. I guess it's because I've spent my entire life you know, really without a diagnosis and without knowing it, mm. I had a, a disability, had autism. So it's hard to, to kind of fathom. But for me, and it's funny too, because I remember he did all the assessments over a long period of time. I remember I, from walking to the waiting room into his office, he said, oh, you, you know, I, I saw how you walked and interacted with, with, your, with your wife, you know, like it's, it's, you stick out like a sore thumb. You know? like, <laughs> and he obviously, this is his specialty, but did, I found that, what are you talking about? I don't walk funny or interact funny. It's really strange. but No, I think that's what happens when you see the right person for the right diagnosis. And I think I explained it to you saying, well, because I'm a geriatrician, I look at people that have well, living with dementia and I can often tell certain characteristics from the person walking from the waiting room. Do they get lost? Do they rely on their loved one to, for directions or reassurance or all of those things? Are they repetitive? So there's certain observations that specialists in that have a really tight subspecialty would pick up just from observing you walking from the waiting room. So I think for you it's overwhelming because you're like, I was just being me and I just stood up from a chair and walked into a room. How can you tell that I've probably got autism? I haven't even sat down and spoken to you yet. But for someone who looks at it every day, you stood out like a sore thumb. And getting the diagnosis, I mean, people always ask, how do you feel about it? I mean, actually even... Even he asked me a couple of times after I saw him again, how, how do you feel about it? And it's funny because my response is the same. I feel great. I feel relief. I feel, uh, I feel content. I feel really grateful and happy that I now have an insight into me as a person. And it wasn't like me as a person has changed. It was more like now I understand how I am mm. as a person. And it, it provides context for me and it also provides context for others and it, it's changed my life because of all those reasons. I mean, it's not like you wish upon yourself anything, but when you go through life and, you know, you struggle so horribly in social situations and, you know, I mean, we haven't mentioned anything about sensory stuff, but, you know, <laughs> but, and, you don't, you, know, you just feel lost or out of place or you don't just don't, you don't belong with even the people you're supposed to belong with. It's tricky. So it's absolutely changed my life for the better. How, how do you think it's kind of changed my life and how has it changed your life? Because there's good and bad things for you. So I think there's a couple of things. The, the first thing relating to you is that I've noticed that since you've had the diagnosis that you don't have to mask as much. And so, just explain masking. So masking is something that people on the autism spectrum do to try to control their environment. So you do stimming when you're feeling overwhelmed, which is that constant movement of your fingers or tracing letters on your hands as a way to try to control how you're feeling and you're overwhelmed by the situation. And so when you're in a social situation, you have to try really hard and use lots of energy to work out what's appropriate, what's not appropriate to say. And the difference between you and, say, a child that might have autism is they haven't necessarily learnt that ability so that you'll see the full range of behaviour in the child where they'll have meltdowns, where they're out of control yelling, screaming because they can't handle the situation, where in an adult they might be doing something repetitive with their hands or their feet or rocking forward and back as a way of trying to suppress all the feelings that they're having. Yeah. So I've noticed that you... At home, you must have been masking to some degree for a period of time because you're not doing that anymore and you're more – there's more outward expression of your your autism at home. And I think in social situations – I mean, we haven't really been in that many lately, but I think you're more yourself, not trying to hide the fact of who you are anymore. And yeah. I think that's great. Like, why the hell should you try to hide who you are? It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's the whole point of this podcast. I mean, and I guess that's right. Now, you know, for me, it, socially, it's not great. But for me, you know, I'm, and I think it's, I think it can be common to autism. There's a logic in being honest and open and direct. Mm. There's a logic in that. And now I'm never trying to offend, insult or hurt people or, or, you know, make people angry, but I'm happy to speak how I would speak without masking it and understand that people have context of, well, that's him and, and they can kind of they can kind of accept it. 
Um, and you know, for me, I saw, I also look at masking as ju- masking is just me just putting on an act to make you feel comfortable that I'm just like you. That's masking too. Mm. When I'm out and about, I can put on an act to make you think I'm just like you. But that just makes me feel sad. And that <laughs> makes me extremely tired and draining. And you know, in my mind, I'm thinking blah 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 blah. Like it's tiring. It's it's a joke. It's a it's a it's a lie. But that's just unfortunately the the way you've got to be. Can can imagine how many people do you think right now listening adults that have autism or should be diagnosed with autism are working in a workplace right now and are acting the way they expect everyone thinks they should act instead of being them themselves. Very, I guarantee. Very true. Yeah. And then the other group of people are the people where it's actually acceptable to act that way in their workplace. Like I could think of a few surgeons in my workplace that I would think might be on the autism spectrum. Yeah. But it's acceptable for them to act the way they do because that's the culture within the workplace. So it's quite challenging if you're an adult and undiagnosed, I think. Absolutely. The other point that I wanted to bring up was the whole situation has really made me want people as a whole to get the diagnosis early because if you can have the diagnosis when you're young and you can be taught strategies and you can have your workplace, your school, all of those things tailored so that you are set up for success, then that makes so much more sense than trying to work out who you are yourself for 40 years and then getting a diagnosis. So I think that's one of the other major things that it's changed for me is just wanting people to to take home that if they, they're concerned about their child one way or another, whether they're not meeting the milestones or they're not acting in a way that they would expect them to, that they should seek advice from their GP or, or a paediatrician to try to get to the diagnosis earlier rather than later. Yeah, this is in no way about a, uh, about a blaming because we can blame a generation. There's no use saying, like, for example, I was, you know, I was born with autism. I was diagnosed you know, in my mid- middle age in effect. So there's no use blaming family because you know they're just we're all regular everyday people doing our best and there's no use blaming the medical profession of the time i often think is there a lost generation am i part of a lost generation we just didn't know enough or we we only focused on extreme autism Mm. and i can understand why you would do that so it's it's a big question for me and maybe we'll get hopefully answer that with this podcast through the time but i agree with you for me it's kind of sad that it's taken this long for me to understand who i am and know who i am and be able to live my life the way I was born to live my life in. When I look at it, I've basically my half of my life I haven't been able to live my life as me. Mm. How that would have helped me professionally and personally is immense. And I'm in my middle age. I've lived, I've lived a long, healthy life. I've got I'm married with kids. I've had a successful career. But really, to be brutally honest with you, I don't really you know have many any friends that I would say you know I talk to people, but you know that I kind of daily interact with or would see or hang out with like. A normal person, and I hate to say normal person, but a people person wouldn't. Would that be different if people knew who I was from the start? Would have they accepted me and my quirks, like you say when you first met me? And it also shows how lucky I am to have met you because clearly, you know, uh, people like me, we date but very differently and it's it's never goes very well. <laughs> dating, I mean, that's a whole other episode, obviously. But, I mean, yeah, dating is, is tricky for an autistic person, so, you know, socially socially uncomfortable and a bit a bit brutal and honest and upfront. It's, it's a tricky situation. God only knows how I made it through two minutes of any date in my life. <laughs> uh, but to find you, someone who actually understands me and gets me and accepts me unconditionally without even knowing the diagnosis is extremely valuable to me and it's probably changed the course of my life. But I agree with you. If there was intervention early, if there was a diagnosis when I was a child, if I was given the resources and the help, I often wonder where – where would I be? How would my life be different? Would it be different? Who I think, knows? Yeah, I think you're right, though. It's really important that we, if anything, this encourages anyone of any age to seek an assessment if they feel like they should. But, you know, parents listening, it's so important to – am I saying the right thing? Is it so important to be mindful and look out for it or is that asking too much of parents? I think it, the most important thing is just to trust your instincts because you know your children the best more than anyone else that spends 10 or 15 minutes with them in a consultation. If you notice that your child isn't acting the way you would expect them to, then get help. Yeah. And don't stop if you're not satisfied with the first response. If you if you still feel that something's not right, even though someone's reassured you, see someone else if it's still a problem, if it's still concerning you. If you can't advocate for your children, then who's going to? Absolutely. I guess finally, I know that on the spectrum, 
there are people who have high care needs mm. and there are people who have low care needs and there's no place that is the same. From my point of view, I just want people to know, regardless of where you fit on that spectrum, I'm being open and honest about my diagnosis. I'm telling the world at large I have autism and I'm doing that for a reason. And that reason is because there's no use hoping the world will become a better place. There's no use hoping stigmas will disappear, misconceptions will be rectified if no one actually does anything about it. Mm. So I think it's really important that people understand this is why I'm being open and honest. I'm telling you, look, I've got autism. This, I'm not the same as any other person who has autism. I'm just one person that has it. But everyone is different and I just hope that people can get some encouragement and inspiration from being open and honest about whatever condition or disability that you have, talking to people openly and honestly about it, and then hopefully trying to make the world a better place for not only the people that suffer from something that you suffer from, but also the wider community. And that, mm. that's kind of the point from my point of view of this podcast. And I know from, from your point of view personally too, you, you can relate to it from friends and family or, you know, I guess more friends who have kids, as you said, workplace friends with autism and the idea that they struggle with what will life be like for their kids. Mm. And that's something like, I'm, a, I'm hoping something like what, what I'm doing provides them with some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other really important take-home message is that everyone's unique and has their own unique qualities and things that they can bring and everyone can have success of some kind when they have a disability. It might not be what you might measure as success might be different depending on people's ability, but you're still all capable of having some kind of success in life. And the, the other big thing that I want to drum on about is that people should stop ignoring the elephant in the room. Like I've found that even since you've been open and said, hey, everyone, I've got autism, people still won't bloody talk about it. So like we'll be in a room with my family or whatever and we might have just told them, but no one will say, hey, so you've got autism. <laughs> so it's like people, we're telling everyone you've got autism and you still won't bloody talk about it. So I think it's important that people actually acknowledge that it's there and acknowledge the the issue and talk openly about it. I think I try to liken any condition, just say, for instance, my patients, if they get diagnosed with depression and they're really self-conscious of it because there's still stigma around a lot of mental illnesses, I say, think of it like heart disease. Someone's had a heart attack. They don't hide it from the community that they've had a heart attack. You've got depression. Why should you hide that from the community? The more people that you want to tell to support you through these these conditions, the better. So I see it the same as you. So you have autism. Okay, you, you've had a heart attack. Why are we not talking about this? So how are you going recovery? from your heart attack how are you going dealing with living on the autism spectrum why are we not talking about that I think it's only through talking openly and honestly with our friends and family and the community that we can reduce the stigma around autism and that is the whole point of this podcast and exactly why I've been so open and honest about my diagnosis and I hope that will inspire you to do the same thing Renee thank you so much for joining me to share our personal story I really appreciate it no worries great to be here my Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Online at orionkelly.com.au Now my next guest is from Autism Spectrum Australia or ASPECT. Dr Tom Tutton is a clinical psychologist and the national manager of ASPECT practice. He has a, just a fantastically simple starting point, getting to know autism. I think it's exactly what we need to hear in this debut episode of My Friend Autism. Tom, welcome and thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Firstly, I've heard autism uh, called a disorder, disability, a place on the spectrum. I mean, it's quite confusing for just, you know, regular everyday people that don't know much about it. So could you just kind of briefly explain what is autism and what is it actually referred to as? Look, I think it's confusing for everybody, even when you've had experience with, within the field. I think it might complicate it here by saying that autism can be considered a disorder, a disability, and a difference, and all of those things. And the way I think of understanding it really is that autism is such an incredibly diverse condition that it can be, in some places, look like a disorder. In some places, it can be a disability. In some places, it's, it's, it's more of a difference. Um, and even a very well-known researcher in the autism field wrote an article really around this topic in terms of thinking about autism in these different ways. There's a phrase 
in the autism community, which um, you will hear. Um, once you've met one person on the spectrum, you've just met one person on the spectrum. Yes. And what they mean by that is, is that everybody's really different. So to have a kind of one-size-fits-all way of understanding autism makes it sort of problematic. And I think we're trying to move away from that, but then it does make it a difficult thing to describe. So yeah. for me, I would describe autism very much as a disability. That's sort of the way that I frame it. Sometimes people refer to it as an invisible disability. I think that's a kind of a nice touch in terms of helping people understand um, some of the challenges. But within this, we'd always talk about what we call the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. So the medical model really is about that. that um, it, that's where the language of disorder comes from, is that there's something wrong in the individual that needs fixing or treating. Whereas the, the social model acknowledges that there are some things within people that uh, make life very difficult, but a lot of what is disabling for people is actually in their environment. So if you think about people who use a wheelchair, yes, um, your leg's not working is disabling, but really what's disabling is the environment around you not being built to meet your needs and so not having ramps to get into your shop, not having doorways that allow you to access things, not having the world operate at your level. That's really where the disability is. And I think, again, when it comes to autism, there is that sort of mix between sometimes things People on the spectrum perhaps really, really struggle to communicate. They have co-occurring conditions like epilepsy, which make life very difficult. But then in other situations, the challenge is very much out in the world. It's about people communicating in, in a way that they don't understand or not understanding the way that people on the spectrum communicate. The sensory world might be really problematic and hard for people to put up with. It. It's loud, it's bright, it's busy, it's noisy, and, and people feel that very much. Or things aren't sort of well laid out or the structures aren't supportive of them. And I think... Um, I acknowledge, again, that there is that difference within lots of people in the spectrum where it is somewhere between disorder, disability, and difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it really does. And it really leads me into the to the next question, Tom, and it's, that was a great yeah. insight. But I guess the question is, so why is there a spectrum for autism? And, you know, what does a place on that spectrum actually mean? Look, I think the word spectrum, you have to sort of go back and, and understand a little bit of the history of autism, that when autism was first diagnosed, it really was just called, uh, it had a sort of different names, but autistic disorder. There was only one way of thinking about this. And that was historically where people just diagnosed people where autism was really obvious. There was often an intellectual disability that people hadn't learned to cope in the world as we know it, and their behaviors were different and sometimes challenging. So that very much was sort of how autism developed. But the more people have understood about, about autism, the more people have realized that there are other people um, who are also autistic who perhaps are less obviously so, and it's taken longer to understand how autism expresses in them, how they perceive the world. This group previously was called, we got the label of Asperger's syndrome. So that, that the idea that there are differences in groups in terms of people on the spectrum, uh, nominally, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why these aren't good terms, people have used high functioning and low functioning to differentiate. So the spectrum kind of links that idea this is what people were thinking, is we can show that autistic people might have a variety of abilities or skills. The issue with that is that it actually isn't a very good description of autistic people, is that it's not just this sort of binary spectrum where you get people with very high support needs at one end and, and low support needs at another. Again, it's more complex than that. The way that I think we like to think of it more and more, if you can imagine like a rainbow color wheel where each colored spoke represents an area of difference or disability. So one might be communication, another might be social interactions, another might be another color might be sensory, another color might be how people use their leisure and play, what their interests and passions are. And that then once you assess somebody on all of those areas, you actually get quite a unique shape in the middle. There might be different types of stars or things like that. So really, I think the spectrum was an attempt to show the diversity in autism, but really at the moment, we're having these conversations to say, we actually need to move beyond that and actually show how, how even more individual and how complex autism really is. So in short, what you're saying is autism is a better way of describing it than autism spectrum disorder. Is that kind of what you're saying to moving yeah. towards that? Yes, certainly we, we don't use the word disorder anymore. I think there are a lot of people on the spectrum who find that very problematic. You know, they're, they're proud of they're also they're proud of who they are, and they don't like to see it being a disorder. And certainly, I think the implications of a disorder, if you use that label, it's very much then about how you support people being deficit-based. We only focus on what's wrong with people. Yeah. We don't acknowledge that they have strengths. We don't change the world around them. 
I think at the moment we use the word autism, you know, people in the autism spectrum or autistic people, but really pushing to to show the diversity within that group, um, that everybody has strengths and capabilities, and people have support needs, and there is a very strong disabling component. Um, but it's just about understanding individuals more and more rather than, you know, that blunt categorization of high functioning or low functioning. Yeah. Primarily, it seems that autism is diagnosed in, in kids and in children and adolescents. Yeah. And for that group, I mean, this is, we're talking in general terms clearly, but are there yeah. known signs or traits? Yes, indeed. So Aspect has a, an assessment team and very regularly uh, people come in for diagnostic assessments. What they're looking for really is a combination of, of two areas. One area is around social communication differences, and the other one is what's called restricted repetitive behaviors and interests. Those are the sort of two key areas where autism is diagnosed, um, and it's done via uh, a combination of a structured interview. So that might be the person talking typically to the person's uh, parents and family about their development and about uh, areas of, of of how they operate. And it's also done by a sort of structured interaction. So it's having that person in the room and going through a, a series of interactions that aim to elicit responses that you can then judge uh, whether or not they might be on the spectrum. Just to give you a couple of examples, of the sorts of things that people might be looking for, one area is called joint attention. So if you've ever been out with a typically developing kid and you see an airplane pass by or a helicopter or something that's quite cool, Often what they'll do is they'll point up at the helicopter. They'll look over at you as mum or dad and then back at the helicopter. That's called joint attention. It's very much about they want to share the experience of that cool thing socially with you and they'll do it through kind of connecting through eye contact and things like that. Whereas lots of people on the spectrum don't do that in the same way. They might enjoy the helicopter, but they don't necessarily share that socially. Another area might be something like uh, pretend play. So um, very typically, um, young kids might, I don't know, grab a hairbrush and then say, look, this is, this is a hovercraft, and they go, and, and things like that. So in the assessment, um, what people will do, will try and get people to, to use different objects in a range of different ways, like here's a banana, let's use it as a telephone, and to see whether kids will go through with that kind of a level of, of, of pretense as well. So that's just a couple of examples. Joint attention, pretend play might be, some of the things that people would be looking for. Can people live their life, I mean, literally their entire life, undiagnosed, being undiagnosed with autistic and never know they actually had it? And looking back in hindsight with your help, would there be traits or challenges that they've experienced that you could actually put down to, to a misdiagnosis? Or can it be quite complicated when they start to age in life and you can put it down to other things? Look, in theory, absolutely yes. I think people can have lived a life where, you know, they would meet those criteria for being on the spectrum, but haven't ever known it. And I've probably met some of those people in the past as well, but diagnosis for them wouldn't necessarily be helpful. You know, it, it, maybe that they're, they're married, they have kids, they, they're a good family family man or family woman, you know, they work, and but they've just often found ways to accommodate their differences to make sure they find their way in the world. So it just has meant that there hasn't been a need for a diagnosis because they've managed to find a way um, to get by. So in a way, Does that is, make sense? yeah, yeah, no, that makes yeah. total sense. And I guess my, my, my kind of follow-up question, and I'm not devil's advocate, but my follow-up question is, yeah. well, as you say, it, it wouldn't really make, it, it might not be helpful. Uh, well, you know, yeah. why? Why wouldn't, because yeah. I, I would think some people would get to a point in their life when, as you say, they have, you know, they, they have a partner, they have kids, they have a job, they have yeah. a life, they're happy, uh, you know, but they, yeah. they've always felt like something's missing or they don't fit in or things aren't right. And would and even though a diagnosis, you know, it's a bit late in life, wh- why wouldn't it be overly helpful, do you think, in your kind of professional opinion? Yeah, look, I, th- I mean, I think very much it depends on the person. So there are certainly many adults who are diagnosed late in life and for them it feels like a huge burden has been lifted because they come to understand themselves and I think those people typically be people who have often felt they've been significantly different they've struggled in some areas at school and excelled in other areas they've struggled maybe to make friends to build relationships they've got passions but people don't seem to acknowledge their passions and I think that sense of frustration of, and, and of being misunderstood if that's who you are and that's been your experience then having a diagnosis then all of a sudden makes sense. And I've met a lot of those people over the years 
where they come into this identity and they realize, ah, this is who I am. This explains why things have been difficult. And it's not necessarily doesn't blame them. It just, this is why other people haven't really understood me or, or supported me as I should have been. So I wouldn't say that it's never a, a benefit because I've seen many and met many people who it's been wonderful for. Which makes total sense. There's the validation argument and then there's also the argument yeah. of, I just don't care. You know, and that's yes. And they work both ways. Are you aware of a trend, you know, whether it's in this country or globally, of more adults being diagnosed yeah. with autism? And why, why is that? Look, I mean, I think that's right. I think, you know, what we're seeing is, one, more awareness of autism. So if you are one of those adults where perhaps it's not really obvious that you're different because you've learned maybe to mask those differences, you've learned to cope, you've learned to fit in, that it's likely that you'll come across the word autism, you'll come across some of the awareness campaigns, and it may be that then you start to realize that there's similarities between how people are describing autism in a movie or in the media or something like that and how you see yourself. I think that's one thing is there's a lot of talk and a lot of awareness. I think other people have now much better recognition of the more subtle signs, particularly in, in women and girls as well. So traditionally, diagnosis has been used it's sort of based on a set of criteria that were developed for men and boys. And we're realizing that actually sometimes autism looks different. So I think adult women would be an area of growth in terms of, of diagnosis as well. But also, I think what I've experienced as well is that sometimes when kids receive a diagnosis, that the family go and they hear what the person has to say about autism, you know, and mum and dad, either one of them will like look at the look at it and it's like, oh man, that's me. And then they'll go, you know what? That's also my granddad as well. So it, it is that kind of retrospective diagnosis that it happens okay. for a young person, but it, it, increasingly people, are, you know, sort of um, back generations realise that maybe they're also on the spectrum. Can I ask, uh, you know, is that legitimate? Do you, do you respect that? Do you believe in that? Is that something that's, that has evidence behind it that is, that is kind of something you, you can actually, actually put weight on or is that just someone having a me too moment and, you know, their own ego kind of yeah. getting it? Yeah, look, I mean, I think obviously if you've been through a diagnostic process and you've been given that label, that it can't say fairer than that. There are conversations at the moment around people who sort of self-diagnose and whether that's valid. You know, and I, I don't want to tell people that that's not valid at all. There's so many barriers in terms of yeah. people actually getting to an assessment in terms of the availability, the cost and things like that. So I think if people want to say, yes, that's me and identify that way, I have no problem with that at all. Okay. If it helps you understand yourself and it helps you operate in the world in a better way, then go for your life. But I wouldn't certainly encourage people to explore that for them. I think, you know, we all want to understand ourselves well it's part of being successful isn't it i think in life yeah. is understanding who you are and why you are so i think any journey down that road is a positive journey is there a genetic connection to you know passing it down uh, yes so genetic you think there's two two bits of potential here in terms of genes one of which is that it's inherited from your family in some way and certainly you know the figures where they look at identical twins where one is diagnosed as being autistic it's much, much more likely, I think it's like 70% more likely that the other one will also be on the spectrum. So you know, because of that, that there's a strong genetic component where people share the same genes. It expresses again, very um, in quite high rates. But what the author tells you, it's not the whole story. There may be some other components that contribute to autism, but we haven't really worked that out yet. Having said that, even if autism is in your family, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have an autistic kid. Sometimes the way that genes are, it's a kind of spontaneous change in the genetic process that means autism will just arrive, you know, even if it's not, you haven't had it in your in your family history. Okay. Now, you mentioned Asperger's a, a while back when you're going through the history yes. of, of the spectrum. It's, it's funny, you talk to some people and they go, don't worry that it's not in the DSM anymore, you know, we can still call yep. it a thing. From your point of view, is it still a thing? What is it? And how is it connected to autism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, it's, Part of that history of autism, there was a, a, a kind of well-known clinician uh, back in the 40s who first started thinking about autism called Hans Asperger. And that part of the spectrum where people perhaps can communicate reasonably well, they have normal to high IQs, they have desires to be social, was named after him. So that was a category of autism. But recently, the way that autism was categorized was changed, and they dropped that term from the sort of medical categorization. So everything falls under the autism spectrum. So it, it, it's sort of fallen out of use that way. But obviously, if you were diagnosed like that, and this has become part of your identity, well, nobody can take that away from you. You have every right to call yourself that. 
for as long as you like. <laughs> it's just a word that obviously will fall out of use because there will be no more of that kind of diagnostic label being applied to people. I can imagine a lot of adults, you know, they, they get through their working career, you know, maybe midlife, and they, they start to look back and go, geez, I wonder why I've uh, had some, 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 so many troubles on and off in the workplace over yeah. time. And I, and, and I yeah. wonder from your point of view, do you think people with autism, and so let's, let's stop saying, you know, high-functioning, low-functioning, just people with autism, yeah, yeah. can be treated like just everyone else, hey, you're just a person, if you're here to work, you're here to work, or do you, do you think they require a different style of workplace management? And what would that actually entail in 2019? Look, I think that there is that sort of middle ground between they're here to work because, and, you know, we need to make some accommodations. I think we're finding more and more that wherever you are on the spectrum, people make incredibly valuable workers and to the point where many people are being hired as an advantage for organizations. You know, if you're a computing company or a bank, now people are coming to our organization saying, we want to source some of these people because of the additional skills they bring. So there's no doubt that autistic people make and can make wonderful employees. However, I think we would always recommend employing people um, where their strengths lie. Another one is just thinking about the sensory nature of the environment. I have a, a colleague of mine who works in a bank, and one of the basic things they did for him was that just they moved his cubicle to a quieter part of the office, away from the foot traffic and people buzzing by. And it just means that he can sit there quietly and get on with it without being kind of overwhelmed or distracted by the noise. I think sometimes people are helped by having organizational support, so to-do lists and checklists and things like that. So it's really clear when they come what they have to do, when they have to do it, how much they have to do, all of those sorts of things. That clarity and role is, is really helpful. And just one more example, I think, is just making sure that the expectations of people uh, fit just around completing their work. Sometimes I think the more challenging situations come up when people have to, are forced to go and sit and have lunch with other people or come out for drinks afterwards, which people may not want to do for a whole range of different reasons. But there may be work expectations that people participate in this. And I know that there have been people who have found life at work very difficult because they don't want to engage in these sorts of things and they're kind of being forced into doing it. So I think it's not huge changes. And I think that's why I love doing some of this sort of work, small Changes can make the biggest difference and find a real home for these valuable employees. What do you wish people who are not autistic knew about autism? It's a really good question. I think we probably work a lot with, with myths about autism. You know, we have groups in our organisation where we sit and we talk to a lot of autistic folks and we try and get information for them. They help guide our organisation. And I think there's a lot of myths out there. And there's probably a top 10 that we could go through right now that if people knew that these were not true, then I think that would be incredibly helpful. Um, so that might be something like, um, oh, you might you make eye contact. You can't be autistic. That would be one thing. You're a girl. You can't be autistic. You talk. You can't be autistic. The phrases that people say like, we're all a little bit autistic, aren't we? I think can delegitimize the sort of the struggles that people face with autism in the world. You know, that it is a disability. It is a challenge. We're not all a little bit autistic. It's a bit like saying, because I have contact lenses, I'm a little bit blind. I don't understand what it's like to be blind in the world. So, I, I know, it, it's significantly different than that. And I think perhaps some of the associations with autism with, with violent behavior, you know, we've had some of our staff say, oh, you know, I work day in, day out with people on the spectrum. And people in the public will say, oh, how do you cope with all your violence? And so, well, why do you say that? It's not how it is. We don't have, it doesn't occur. We have good times together. Yes, there's challenges, but they're managed very peacefully. So I think, you know, there are a lot of things that people, a lot of misnomers about autism that I think if we could get rid of them, that I think the world would probably be a much more comfortable place. So that's a great answer, Tom. What I get from that is we've got a long ways to go, huh? The wider community. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I, I think we do. I think it, there's just a lot of compassion. I think just we need to keep having with each other. We need to acknowledge that people are different. We need to, we need to embrace difference as something which is something that helps our species work well. Yeah. One of the core kind of philosophies in our environment is this idea of um, of neurodiversity. So it sort of comes from this idea that with environments, biodiversity is, is something that makes the world stronger. The more diverse the plant species and animals, the more likely that area is to survive because of that diversity. And humans are the same. It's great that we have people in our world who think differently, 
see the world differently, process the world differently, experience things differently, because we can learn from that. It's just important that all of those people, whether it's a difference or a disability, are treated fairly and we protect their rights and we give them every opportunity that's out there as well. Tom, thank you so much for your time. It was a fantastic chat. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. That was Dr. Tom Tutton, clinical psychologist and the National Manager of Aspect Practice from Autism Spectrum Australia, or ASPECT. And you can listen to the full interview with Tom on the autism episode of my podcast, Intensely Inquisitive. And a big thanks also to my other guest, my wife, Renee. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Thank you so much for listening to the debut episode of My Friend Autism. I really do appreciate it. If the episode has resonated with you, please share it with your friends and family so we can reach even more people. I'd love to continue a conversation with you. If there's a topic on autism you'd like me to explore to get to know better, well, please email me. Do it online right now. Go to my website, orionkelly.com.au. That's O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au. Or you could leave me a message on the Orion Kelly Facebook page. This podcast is here to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism. Together, we can make the world a better place for those living with autism. And remember, once you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. All I'm asking is to open your hearts and minds to people that are a little bit different to you. Because in the end, we're all in this together. Till next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. To join the conversation, get in touch with Orion and never miss an episode. Like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook or visit orionkelly.com.au.